You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and there is no gym this week. He and I were supposed to co-present at the FIDO Alliance Authenticate 2021 conference this week in Seattle. Unfortunately, he was unable to make the trip due to a last-minute illness. So, I am flying solo this week, and I had several conversations with fellow identity professionals around a number of topics. This is the final conversation, number 505, from the Authenticate 2021 conference in Seattle. I spoke with Gail Hodges, Executive Director of the OpenID Foundation, about the organization and how nonprofits are shaping the future of identity. Thanks in advance for listening, and here is that conversation. All right, so I'm here with Gail Hodges. She's the executive director for the Open ID Foundation and also the founder of the Future Identity Council, which sounds super cool. Thanks for joining me. Jeff, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we met uh, a couple nights ago. Um, we met for dinner at uh, a fellow Identorati person's house. And I got to commend you on your red velvet cake, which was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And Sarah's uh, beautiful beef stew. I mean, we, were, we had a wonderful evening, didn't we? Yes, it was a disagreement of Identorati, as uh, has, has been coined. Uh, but that was pretty cool. Uh, and that's really the first time that, that I met you. But we really didn't get into kind of talking about your background and kind of what your perspective has been. And it's, it's tradition and ritual on this show that when someone joins us for the first time, that we put them through the ringer and ask them, what is their identity or InfoSec background? How did you get into this? Is it something that you chose or did it choose you? Yes, it certainly wasn't uh, intentional. Uh, the first 20 years or so of my career has been in financial services. So um, post-business school was working for American Express, leading uh, credit and debit card portfolios for them in the UK. And then I moved over to HSBC, where I was leading credit and debit card portfolios uh, for, for HSBC globally. Uh, but I was in a position where uh, I became the most senior product person when digital payments was a big competitive threat for the banks. And so I started leading the strategy strategy for, for digital payments. And uh, in that context, I had my first uh, interactions with folks in the identity world. So uh, as part of the digital board of HSBC, my peers were really concerned about what is the experience for, for HSBC users logging in uh, to the platform. And so that was my first exposure. Uh, but it wasn't until I was joining Apple uh, in uh, 20. 2015, I guess it was. And uh, when I was actually interviewing with Apple, uh, I was expressing what I thought would be an opportunity for Wallet to look at identity. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know, shortly after I joined uh, Apple, I was starting to lead the effort for, for identity from a business perspective on, on Wallet. So I spent several years at Apple, and um, some of the work there has now become public information. We might come on to that later in our conversation. Um, but when I, when I left Apple, I saw a big delta between where governments were in identity and where the private sector was. And so I decided to uh, volunteer my time and start the Future Identity Council, which is helping governments issue digital identity credentials. And it was in the doing of that good work um, that I crossed the path of uh, Don Thibault and the board of the Open ID Foundation. And they reached out to me to, to consider being their, their next executive director and, and take over from, from Don Thibault. So since May of this year, um, I've been acting as the executive director with this genius group of technologists 
that I feel lucky to be surrounded by. Um, and subsequently here talking to you today, Jeff, and attending the Authenticate conference. Truly the highlights of your career, if I, if I do say so myself. 100%. 100%. <laughs> uh, so I, I, got a, I, got a, I got a side question here around you know, executive director of this foundation, right? Open ID, building out standards and writing white papers, all that stuff. What's it like to be an executive director of a foundation like that? Just give me a day in the life of, of kind of what you do. Uh, good. It's a great question. I mean, my natural disposition is I spend a lot of my time thinking about strategy because that's what, you know, I enjoy. And, you know, what can an organization like the Open OpenID Foundation do to address some of the most structural problems that we have in the world around identity? Uh, there's kind of a natural role for nonprofits to fill a, the gap between the services that the private sector is capable of offering and government policy. And, uh, and so sometimes there's just this space that's ripe for um, standards to emerge that makes it easier for entities to interoperate amongst each other, and that's clearly a space the OpenID Foundation is in. Uh, but we also see a, a lot of policy movement and regulation emerging, whether it's from a privacy angle or whether it's from the recent like COVID passport certificates um, or mobile driving licenses and new, new efforts there or the U EU legislation around digital wallets. There's, oh, and I'm, there's an even greater field around verifiable credentials and blockchain and, and so forth. So there's a lot of movement in this space. And so I, I spend a fair chunk of my time thinking about where the thought leaders and the geniuses in this domain um, really can benefit from focusing their collective volunteer effort um, to make sure that it's a better space for users. Mm, that sounds pretty cool. And so... So right now for OpenID Foundation, I think people probably might be familiar at least with OpenID Connect, at least to some level. And I know mm -hmm. that's something that the foundation works on. But yeah. I guess, if, you know, from your perspective leading this organization now, you know, what is the OpenID Foundation? Yeah, so the OpenID Foundation uh, leads standards in a few different areas, and it kind of depends what sector you might be in as to which standard may be the most relevant for, for you. Um, you're absolutely right that what we're best known for is where we started, which is OpenID uh, Connect. And those applications, the everyday user might have been experiencing when they try and log in with Google or log in with Facebook, and they're using a login with one entity to give them access to something else, like Skype or their Yahoo or Hotmail account or, or something like that. And uh, so that's a federated login is, is how I think about it. Mm -hmm. You're not just logging straight into a site. You're using another entity, a third party, to get you into the site you're trying to go to. And usually that's a great convenience, mm -hmm. you know, for, for, um, for the user. So we, there is the standard of OpenID Connect that underpins that. From a slightly more technical layer, it is a simple identity layer on top of OAuth 2.0, and it enables relying parties to, to verify the user. Um, so extremely widespread. It's you know, enabling billions of transactions probably per day, um, certainly per month, um, across all of these different platforms of Google and Verizon and T-Mobile and KDDI and you know, a lot of everyday household names. They're using them, and users are using them every day. Uh, but we're also enabling other standards, which, depending on where you are in the world, you might have been uh, getting involved with. So in the EU in 20, uh, in the UK, I should say, in 2017, they had put into place regulation around open banking. And so open banking is I, as a user, want to get access to my banking data and enable a fintech service. So at least for a US user, you might have done something like 
provide your login and passwords to Mint in order to be able to aggregate your financial accounts and have them in one view, or to any, uh, file your taxes. You went into Intuit and maybe provided login and password to be able to let Intuit pull your data from different accounts and aggregate it together. But that's obviously terrible screen scraping security, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is no good for anybody as a sustainable model. Um, but I uh, recently heard a, a data point from, from Don Cardinal at um, FDX uh, speaking to on the order of 100 million identity accounts where people have provided logins and passwords. It's used at tremendous scale and therefore creates tremendous risk. So regulators are concerned about the risk as well as about enabling um, new technologies to flourish, right, by not having user data ring-fenced and to give users a little bit more sense of control over their own information. So kind of going back to the UK, they put that um, open banking uh, regulation in place before they knew exactly how they were going to do it. And the FAPI, the financial grade API from the Open ID Foundation, uh, was a great fit for their security profile. So again, a federated use case between a bank and a third party financial service and uh, and the user. How can the user, you know, have a, a sense of confidence when they're allowing, enabling that transaction? Uh, I should say it's blind to the user. It's not branded. It's not, nothing's branded FAPI. Um, but the regulator could encourage the industry to adopt that standard and then everyone could interoperate with each other, not needing bilateral agreements between each of them. So that same model has uh, cascaded to other markets as it often does with regulation and then the standards that should be um, underpinning them. So the um, Australian market has leaned into using FAPI for open banking in Australia. Uh, Brazil is doing the same thing, mandating the use of FAPI uh, for banks, as well as we expect that to be mandated for the relying parties as well. And we'll see other countries around the world that are moving towards open banking doing the same. And the US is included um, in, that, in that mix. Uh, so a lot of, lot of interesting moving, movement there around um, open banking. And uh, there are many other standards. Maybe one worth a shout out here is shared signals. Uh, the idea that between different par parties, one could be sharing uh, fraud risks, like account takeover concerns that one entity might have, um, or a new phone number that's been changed that another entity would like to know before they grant account access or before they enable a certain higher risk transaction. So the standard for shared signals at events, which is built off the back of a few longer, longer term um, standards at the OpenID Foundation, uh, that's now a, a really interesting uh, standard which experts in the security or the fraud domain should be looking at those standards to see if that could be of interest to them too as that starts to scale up. Um, and what, the way I kind of describe it is the very best practices of a Microsoft or a Google used to be only shared within that, that enterprise. So if you were Google you know, Mail, you might be sharing information with another part of Google Cloud mm -hmm. and helping each other you know, have great uh, security around the services you're offering to an individual user. Um, but now you can go beyond that, right? So sh sharing across entities and how do you do that in a privacy-preserving way and a consistent um, standards-based way. And as other entities look to offer shared uh, signal services, um, here's a standard. Everyone can point to and use the same standard, even if they have their own commercial arrangements between the parties. So I want to ask a question around uh, resistance. So I think of things like FAPI, and you've got organizations like banks who you know, have their own data, and their probably number one priority is protecting their users, right? And now we're in this world where we do have these financial services, fintech, whatever it may be, that you know the, the user wants to be able to pull that data in. And I'm curious, when, when you're having conversations with these types of organizations, do you ever find resistance from 
institutions that are like, no, this isn't secure enough for us or it doesn't meet our needs or we don't want to do that? Or, you know, has the thinking changed a little bit? Say, yeah, we know that there are things out there like Mint and personal capital and Plaid and all these other things that are brokers essentially trying to get the financial information for on behalf of the user into some new service, right? Whether it's analytics or, you know, an automated savings account or whatever it may be. Yeah. I'm just curious if you, if you, is that something that generally financial institutions are like, yeah, let's make this better? Or do you find resistance <laughs> on that? <laughs> I think it's an absolutely fair question. And um, I think you're quite right. You know, in the space of open banking, uh, there would be natural resistance from a financial institution, you know, concerns about the security as you, as you rightly pointed out. Um, and so the trend that seems pretty obvious now is it doesn't tend to happen organically. There might be isolated banks that offer to share data on their users um, for fees, um, but generally speaking, it's not done at scale uh, for an entire country or an entire ecosystem unless it's mandated under the, the regulation. And so therefore, some legislators have determined at some point it's in the best interests of their users, maybe in the best interests of the economy to enable uh, more competition. And so, you know, a few different reasons for, for focusing on it. In fact, I thought it was quite interesting that in the Can recent Canadian election in, uh, in September that both parties were advocating for open banking, maybe slightly different flavors of it, but both of them kind of aligned to their values um, to, to pursue open banking. So in many parts of the world, uh, including in the US, the banks recognize um, that there's a, going to be a requirement to take action. Uh, in the US, it was the banks, along with the fintechs, coalescing into a consortium of their own through through FDX and, and the work that Don Cardle's leading. leading. Um, and that's kind of maybe getting ahead of regulation. Perhaps regulation will come a little bit later but that's almost uh, the, the opposite of the norm, which is the regulator taking action first um, and then the industry trying to work on how do I, how do I implement this regulation in a secure way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as someone who takes advantage of these services, I'm really tired of entering an ID and a password and then, you know, going through this account linking process all the time where, you know, it's just, it's a mess. So hopefully- Yeah, they... more and more FIDO for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you mentioned one other thing earlier on around mobile driver's license and- you know, this has become interesting, I think, in the U.S. as, well, one is me as being just a big old nerd and, you know, hey, that's another thing I could put in my Apple wallet or maybe even my Google wallet. Right. You know, Apple has recently announced that they're working with, I think it's um, Georgia and I don't remember the other state. but I believe it's eight U.S. states that yeah. they announced oh, and so the TSA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's an exciting development, I think. Um, yeah. Is OpenID working on anything for a mobile driver's license? Uh, the OpenID Foundation is, um, and with my other hat, this volunteer role with the Future Identity Council, we've been hip deep in that work for, for about 18 months. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll wear my Future Identity Council hat for a bit, and then I'll come back to the, the links to the, the OpenID Foundation, which are really exciting, too. Um, so, so big picture, there's been a trend for a while around different countries and states wanting to move towards a digital version of the physical credentials that they already offer to users. Um, and it's one of those things where if you don't really have it today, you're not necessarily thinking, I as a user am desperate to have a digital identity credential. But progressively, it's one of the few things you need to carry your wallet for, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll have you know, the college students with a phone case that happens to have a sleeve for just their ID. That's the only thing that's a physical credential they're carrying outside of their phone, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
And so it's becoming more obvious as other types of credentials have been digitized that the big one that was missing, you know, was was identity. And that's obviously a trickier a trickier nut to crack, you know, for for governments to be able to figure out how to digitize it, how to do so safely, knowing that if you got it wrong, then you're basically just printing fake IDs, right? And that's no good for anybody, right? Not for the governments, not for the users, not for the relying parties, you know, full stop. So there had to be a, I think a great deal of consideration before um, any state would issue such a credential. Um, but you would see some examples. And um, now with the, the recent engagement of, of Apple, you know, as is, as is common, there's a trend already happening. And they you know, come in at just the right time mm -hmm. to take that, um, that trend and ideally you know, move it to scale. Like maybe what we've seen with something like Apple Pay and Google Pay and Samsung Pay, they took NFC um, and contactless transactions, which were more commonly seen in, in Europe with contactless contactless cards and brought that to the device and then you started to see widespread availability of contactless terminals that were being activated and turned on and it really uh, drove radical transformation in the physical environment and, and contactless as well as uh, digital digital payments. So my aspiration for, for the space is that we'll see something similar start to emerge um, and it will become another thing that we just assume we've always had, <laughs> right? In five years or 10 years, we'll be like, well, of course my passport, of course my national ID, of course my driving license and my library card and everything is, there's a virtual version of it. Um, and it will become, I believe, um, a very a normative practice. I want to assert my identity in person, among, doing my day-to-day -day business, going to the pharmacy, um, going to get a beer, get a drink, uh, get it, rent a car, any of those places where you would typically in person present your physical ID, but it will also be another uh, form factor that you can present in the online domain to establish your identity. Um, and that's where some of the links will come in to the OpenID Foundation and, and their work and having standards like OpenID Connect. In one of the leading standards for mobile driving licenses, which has been led out of ISO and the 18013-5 standards work, uh, they point to um, OpenID Connect as one of the ways in which one could release the information from the user's device to a relying party. Um, and that's quite exciting, because it's um, there are uh, privacy-preserving concerns in some ways that that transaction could be conducted, but with the appropriate uh, belts and suspenders, it could unlock browser-based exchange of data and app store-based exchange of data um, to allow relying parties to consume these exciting new credentials with really high levels of trust because mm -hmm. they came from the government and to know that there's a really solid chain of trust from the time of provision, the way that it's stored on the device and how it ultimately gets released to that relying party. Um, so personally, I'm really bullish about uh, the opportunity in that domain space and what it can really mean for users. Yeah, I am too. I think uh, digitizing things is, is fantastic. You know, I, and I'm, now I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on because, of course, there's always the opposite to it. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, distrust of government, right? So sure. I think just personally, my, my speculation will be that this is probably going to have to be opt-in for a while <laughs> uh, yeah, to just demonstrate that trust. And at some point, right, people aren't, aren't walking around and they don't have horses and buggies. Now they're driving <laughs> yeah. you know, cars. So uh, hopefully it moves the transition moves quicker than that, but it's exciting to hear that this is stuff that's coming, right? Eight states are already doing it, you know, through Apple. Um, I'm sure there are other partnerships. You know, people who don't have Apple phones are probably looking at Google 
on the yeah, Android governments platform. will need to support all users, not right. just Apple users. So there's, you know, they, yeah. they have a re responsibility <laughs> to their citizenry um, to be open in the way that they engage in technology. So I think we'll see the wider ecosystem, you know, making announcements and taking action uh, in the months ahead. But you, you raise a good point, like users will have inherent concern, mm -hmm. right, around how does this really work in practice. And I think if you look at the standards, what's really exciting about the way it's built into the standards itself is that the user has the control, right? They decide when they release their credential. They decide what data off of their you know, digital credential mm -hmm. they, they choose to release in every transaction. Um, so that's a, a massive leap forward from I just hand over my password, I hand over my, my driving license and the hotel takes a picture of it and then it goes where, right? Yeah. <laughs> or the bank takes a picture of it and do they need all the information? So there's a, a lot of uh, upsides, but there's also you know the downsides of how digitized versions of data could, could be misused. And the issuing authorities that I work with on a day-to-day on -day basis are deeply concerned around um, the wider picture, not just how they virtualize, but how those credentials will be used in, in the wild, right, when mm -hmm. they're in the, in the real world. And um, users would rightly say, oh, well, is my if I have a driving license on here, do I have to give it my entire phone over yeah. to law enforcement? Right? right, that's what I was thinking. No, no you wouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it wouldn't be uh, privacy preserving at all right. <laughs> if you yeah. hand over your phone <laughs> to the police. So in the core model and what the standards would specify is the user has that control. They decide when they're going to release the data. And so there's a you know technical solutions that are evolving on how can you have an exchange of data with a law enforcement professional where they're asking for the data and you would know it's a law enforcement professional who's mm -hmm. asking you for that that information and how can you securely exchange the data while always keeping control of your of your device and that's important to issuing authorities you know as much as it is to users that they're going to have that comfort you know that's an interesting use case that I, I for whatever reason wasn't thinking about is the opposite of this scenario of I you know I get pulled over and <laughs> you know someone's like hey I want to see your driver's license this is also potentially an opportunity where the you know, the person who's being pulled over, me, yeah. let's say, yeah. I can validate the identity of the person who is coming over and say, is this really a police officer? Yeah, yeah, and that's a real concern. You know, we've heard a lot in the last couple of years, people of color, you know, mm -hmm. having concern about is this, you know, a legitimate person? Do I have a record of a transaction right. or things like that? Um, I, 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 although I may not have full expertise in, <laughs> in some of those 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 issues, not not being uh, not having faced them myself, I I do see that as a another big opportunity, right? How do I validate the relying party as a legitimate relying party before right. I release my information? <laughs> That is a piece of the puzzle that is not yet fully solved. It's one that the community is still trying to work on, right? There's not, for something like mobile driving licenses, there's not a registration component for the relying party to say, how is the relying party uh, right. identifying itself as part of this transaction? How can I have that confidence? So I reference that in the law enforcement context as being like kind of a natural requirement. I'm not sure that that'll be met from the very beginning. So that's a, a, a important qualification um, for some domain spaces like the TSA, I, I do believe, you know, they're, they're looking to, to register and make it more clear and assert to the user that they are legitimately the TSA, you mm -hmm. know, as part of that transaction. Um, but that's a, another really important piece of the puzzle um, that you do want to have the two-way trust, right? right? Not just the relying party knowing for sure it's the user, you know, right. to manage their risk, but similarly the user knowing for sure, you know, and it goes further than that, right? How do I know that the relying party is going to use my data the way they say they're going to? 
right? Uh, when one looks even further down the path, you would have heard of GDPR and the CCPA legislation in California, privacy protection, putting obligations on relying parties, but they haven't got a lot of technical sticks to make sure that it's being followed in practice. Mm -hmm. So in the courts of law and you know, through financial penalties, you might be able to point at some big players, um, but how can you do that for the universe of all players, right? And, there's this path, which I get, you know, waxing poetic in the future, <laughs> maybe. Um, there's a path where one could use things like mobile driving licenses um, to assert your CCPA right, you know, to be forgotten and say, I shared this information with you, and now I'm asserting my right to retract that access to my information. Same thing under GDPR, right? You have that right to be forgotten. So I think we are seeing some really amazing building blocks emerging that are standards-based that can fundamentally improve the, the user's experience. That's excellent. I want to get to the Future Identity Council in a second, but what I want to ask here is, so the OpenID Foundation, FIDO Alliance, I guess, yeah, what's, yeah. what's the relationship between you know, those two organizations? How, what's the intersection there? Yeah, they're, they're very complementary efforts. And, uh, you know, I think OpenID Foundation was born just a few years before the, the FIDO coalition um, coalesced, you know, it, it, towards its purpose. Uh, but they're, they're quite complementary. So whereas uh, if you're thinking about authentication and what you might have is a Yubico key or my login and password capability or um, uh, passwordless logins or my biometric I'm using to do face ID into my device. That's the kind of upfront authentication step. Um, to go into something like a Microsoft and log into Microsoft services before Microsoft could then uh, give you access to a, a third-party service like Skype. Um, so you have the, the link between the third parties, so between Microsoft and Skype, that's an OpenID Connect protocol, and between your authentication, your Yubico key, your face ID, that's between you and your device, or that's between you and, and Microsoft, that upfront link. So there's uh, kind of like, um, it's bilateral, you know, between for FIDO between the authentication device and and uh, and that party that you're trusting, right? So it could be the end party or it could be the enabler. Um, and then for a federated use case, that's where it kind of extends that step further because you're trying to share that information to a, a third party that's not uh, part of the initial relationship. Sounds very complicated when I describe <laughs> it that way, doesn't it? Um, but the the end game is that uh, they're complementary standards, and you know part of the reason that I'm here with many members of the OpenID Foundation community is that our our worlds beautifully overlap, right? From a technical point of view, to use FIDO authentication is like fantastic, and we we wave the flag, you know, mm -hmm. for for FIDO authentication uh, for that end user, you know, component because the the OpenID Foundation standards don't specify anything around that. Um, it's uh, it's left to the industry, and and FIDO is a wonderful way to solve that part of the problem. Very cool. So let's get to Future Identity Council because one, that's a badass name. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the Future Identity Council? Uh, so, yeah, I guess I was talking a lot about it before I got into describing what it is. Um, so the Future Identity Council was uh, born out of this acknowledgement that uh, governments had a, a big role to fill in, in digital identity and providing foundations. They always have through the issuance of physical credentials, but there was this big gap around what it could look like when one went virtual. And there was a lot of expertise in the private sector, but 
in the government sector, you'd see certain individuals who had a great uh, amount of knowledge, uh, but there was a need to kind of upskill very, very quickly and to think about all the strategic implications and uh, educate, really. So the Future Identity Council was an opportunity to bring together um, a lot of the thought leaders from a government perspective and ensure that the private sector, in partnership with them, was meeting their needs, almost like meeting the needs they didn't know they had. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the uh, future part. <laughs> you know, it, I, I jointly found this with a chap named um, Jeff Slagle, who was formerly the director of identity at AMBA, the Association of DMVs, and, uh, and he's now uh, an executive at uh, at Scitalis, uh, which provides MDL services. But Jeff and I saw this common problem that there was a, a bit of a gap on the on the government side and an opportunity to to raise the bar. And, uh, and so we basically uh, you know, reached out to a bunch of the government players to see if they had an appetite to have a, a safe space you know, for public and private sector conversations together. And there really was that, that desire. So right now, uh, the Future Identity Council is comprised of seven US states, including the four largest states, California, Florida, Texas, and New York, along with some of the other fast movers in, um, in, in mobile driving licenses, some of which you know, were, were announced in the, in the Apple release. And uh, seven, uh, inter seven countries, so the UK, Finland, Sweden, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Netherlands, and I'm always forgetting one or two, <laughs> <laughs> you know, seven countries, and three US federal departments, so the GSA, uh, the State Department, and um, the Department of Homeland Security and TSA. Those were the kind of government oversight members, and some of them also had participation in the working groups. And we set up uh, privacy, security, and operational working groups to flesh out what it would mean in practice for a government to issue one of these digital versions of a credential. What do they need to think about in the upfront architecture, the provisioning process, the lifecycle management? Um, you know, how should they think about the relying parties and how far their remit would go? What should expect expectations be of relying parties? And after a year of, of work, we kicked off only in August of last year, and within one year, we had finished all the recommendations on um, building blocks along the lines I just described. So we could hand it over to governments and say, start to incorporate this in your programs. Like as you're building out these digital identity capabilities, make sure this is your checklist of things that you're sorting out. And so I'm delighted to say, you know, at the end of August, we also handed over that draft of recommendations to AMBA, the Association of um, American Motor Vehicle Administrators, which is a fancy way of saying it's all of the DMVs in the US and Canada um, who work together, you know, to have uh, shared practices, because I think most of your your listeners know uh, that it's the DMVs that issue identity credentials here in the US and in Canada. It's not a federal service, mm -hmm. right? So this is a consortium that knits together um, the identity issuance function. So our recommendations are fed into their implementation guidelines, which they'll formally release in the next um, few weeks, and also into what they'll offer as a digital trust service, which is a little bit like IKO, which offers a public key directory for passports. Uh, if you think of all those chips, you have on your passports uh, in order for it to work when you go across the border from one country to the other. If they want to read that chip, there has to be a way to get the, the public key and to know that it's a legitimate public key. So there's a public key directory mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> conveniently hosted by IKO, uh, which is also a nonprofit. Um, and this, in a way, is the same thing for North American um, administrators, right, for issuers of, of credentials here in North America, uh, that they also will have a way of having a public key. And that also then makes it convenient for any relying party that would like to consume those keys to have a single place that they go to, right? There's other benefits to it, but 
we were proud that our recommendations, you know, were are, are being adopted and incorporated into the work of AMVA, and we hope into the work of uh, the EU as they move down the path of their wallet legislation and, and other countries as well. That's pretty neat. Uh, it seems like there's been this trend of collaboration with different organizations and, you know, the DMVs in the U.S. and Canada, like you, like you mentioned here. Yeah. Um, there's this thing that I've heard of called GAIN. Yeah. You know, a, a global <laughs> global assured identity network. What is that? Yeah, I don't give myself easy problems to work on. i got to be <laughs> honest, Jeff. Yeah, it's a... It's a uh, these are tough, tough problems, but this is the world we're in, right? You know, no single vendor, no one country, no one big digital player, even as big as an Apple, can solve all these problems on their own. And Gain is is just one such uh, such effort. Uh, so, so Gain is defined as uh, the Global Assured Identity Network. And when people first hear about Gain and the word network, they go, "Wait a second, mm-hmm. is this going to be like a private sector enterprise like Visa, you know, or or a new?" MasterCard, and is there going to be some new tax upon how identity is going to work? Um, and that's not the uh, the thesis behind GAIN. The thesis behind GAIN is that it's going to be a standards-based way of exchanging data, and there can be a very large number of identity providers and a very large number of relying parties, but they can all, all use the same standards. So I'll try and clarify a little bit more. So there could be um, banks that take advantage of the KYC capabilities that they have at scale, and they look to um, assert to different relying parties that they have identified this individual. That could be done through their original KYC process and then assured through their their login, like however you access your your banking service, maybe with that FIDO key, right? <laughs> so you've actually, but you could use that that banking credential to then assert identity and information to a third party, you know, relying party, maybe to Disney to say that you're 18 plus, right? Mm-hmm. Or to open an account with another organization or to assert you're over 21 to buy alcohol, right? Bunch of the usual things. So the banks could play that role. Um, mobile networks can play that role. Consortiums can play that role, like a bank ID in Sweden where they have really great traction and coverage, um, a secure key in Canada, um, a uh, so many, so many different ways, but also mobile driving licenses or national ID to the degree that they're also virtualized, those can be the credentials on a user's device that they assert. Um, the main point is all of them, instead of having bespoke SDKs that get incorporated into, into um, uh, relying party services, their output is standards-based, mm-hmm. right? So if you have your, your metaphor of a train in the tracks, right, you've got your train track which is, and, and your, uh, you know, of security, uh, which might be something like a financial-grade API. So how do you secure the information as it moves between the parties? Um, or an open ID connect, this multi-party federated standard. Um, but then in the cars, what is the data that you need to have? The first name, the last name, the date of birth, what's the information needed for that individual transaction? And then the relying parties know that they can consume information from a bunch of different IDPs and incorporate that into their decision-making process. Another thing that's really cool about this hypothesis is that it links the trust framework of an individual market. So you can create not just global interoperability on the back of a global standard, a technical standard, but also also on the way that the trust frameworks between different countries, like what NIST might say about a trust framework versus what the UK government might say versus the EU and their trust framework or Canada's trust framework, that you can kind of map the trust frameworks against each other so that an international organization, a vendor or a bank or whatever can actually uh, not have to do complete rebuild on Mm -hmm. how they operate in each market. Um, They're able to kind of translate 
translate what type of proofing has happened, what type of quality of credential, what trust framework has it met, and you're converting that trust framework into something digital that you can then consume and make decisions about as a, as a relying party more, more easily. There was not one single organization that came up with GAIN. It's 150 different authors, which I you know, should have mentioned up front, um, where everyone was kind of dropping their, their brand, their logos, and so forth, and we're saying, you know, we all believe that this is a, a really important uh, way of addressing interoperable identity. I think Nat Sakimura said it best, uh, you know, as he was describing the origins of the internet, everybody knew who everybody was because everyone came from a university or they came from a military organization. You couldn't get onto the internet unless you were a known individual. And then of course everything completely opened up. Uh, so this is a way of kind of putting back a layer of assured identity on top of the internet as a whole. And uh, I, I should have even mentioned like verifiable credentials, like those can also be like sources of data, you know, but you're then sending some of the data using the EKYC and IDA um, standard from, from the OpenID Foundation. There are, you haven't asked me this question yet, Jeff, but are, which nonprofits are involved in GAIN? <laughs> which nonprofits are involved in GAIN? <laughs> well, it's such a good thing that you asked that. Um, so the, the Open ID Foundation is just one of five initial nonprofits that are helping to nudge this uh, this thesis into reality. Um, so the Open ID Foundation, you know, their role is to offer, or our role is to offer uh, not just the standards, but also to be a safe space to test those standards out through a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. So we're here at Authenticate and at the member plenary tomorrow uh, as a listening session. Um, to hear from the community what would a good proof of concept, how can we set that up and be inclusive and kind of work through the things that need to be tested through, through any good proof of concept. And we already know it's working. The standards are working. You know, the people, a few people are kicking the tires, but we want to stand that up and really work through a methodical process that brings the community, the wider community along, along with us. Then there's four other entities, the Open Identity Exchange that works on trust frameworks and the interoperability of those trust frameworks I mentioned. That's their wheelhouse, right? Mm -hmm. They think about those rules of the road and how, how how can you operate effectively and map to legislation? So Open Identity Exchange has got their working group, you know, focusing on that piece of the puzzle. An organization called GLIFE, that is the legal global legal um, identifier uh, foundation. Uh, GLIFE is looking at uh, entities, legal entities, so that could be nonprofits or for-profit organizations, so that they can conduct transactions and they can, you know, participate in the ecosystem um, just like individuals can. Uh, then there's the IIF, which were I should, could have mentioned them as one of the thought <laughs> leaders and founders of this whole initiative. Um, so the uh, the the IIF, if you haven't heard of them, is a, a top 500 banks in the world uh, financial organization, and that the, the the leaders on the board include like luminaries of you know, the CEOs of major banks. Um, so they're a very well-known and trusted organization amongst the financial services community. And um, they are one of the founding members and looking to encourage the financial sector to engage in this, right, and to offer the confidence and trust they have. Um, and also to acknowledge that if banks don't lean in, there's a bit of an existential concern for banks, right? Because banks are based on trust. Right. And so if trust moves away <laughs> or identity <laughs> moves away from, from banks, what does that mean for them in the future? And there's another important entity, the uh, um, Cloud uh, Consortium, uh, CSE, and they are um, they have uh, cloud consortium signature standards, which um, are compliant for, for EU regulation. Uh, but we, we warmly welcome other nonprofits to participate, and certainly the for-profit entities that would like to participate as IDPs and relying parties, uh, we encourage them all to get smart, read the white paper, you know, come think about getting involved in the proof of concept and see if now's the right time for them. Because I think it's one of those things people should all know about and make a conscious decision about, not 
just not know about it or, uh, you know, miss out, you know, to be part of the early stage. Right. It's an opportunity to get it on the ground floor, right, and help not only be part of it, but maybe even potentially shape some of the areas. 100%. That might... Shape the direction it goes in. You right. got it. So you've been really generous with your time, and I want to kind of close off here with talking about the conference itself. Sure. Right? Any, any favorite presentations, conversations, you know, anything that, that jumps to mind as far as, you know, what your experience has been here this week for Authenticate 2021? Yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. You know, I, I've even just little tidbits that I've taken away of like where people see the fit of the open ID connect and how it's harmonious with Fido. I, I think that's really kind of a lot of light bulbs go off for people, which is fun in like the, the interpersonal chit chats in the hallways. Um, it's also exciting to see gain, like as this is was only just announced last month. So people are leaning in and are interested in learning more. So that's, that's very fulfilling. Um, and lots of the other nonprofit partners I'm getting to know as a, as a newer executive director in this domain space, it's been a pleasure to meet a bunch of my peers. Um, but a couple of the talks I thought really stood out to me. So uh, Bob Lord was from the Democratic National Committee was talking about how they rolled out FIDO across all of their staff, 100% of their staff. Um, and obviously that plays an important role for the Democratic National Committee given the hack that they've had in the past. Um, they're setting themselves hope, you know, up for success, I think, to have such a secure implementation and, deploy, and, and to deploy FIDO at scale at the speed with which they've done that. And it's proven you know, one can do that at scale and quickly. Mm -hmm. um, across a, a population of staff that may not all be super technically comfortable, um, it's they can still be very effective in their their rollout. And he was an impassioned and great advocate for for Fido, which uh, it was great to see. Um, I was also like really encouraged to see the the Google presentation um, from David. He was uh, talking about the overall you know strategy that Google's thinking about. And some, some key points like uh, nutritious consumption of data, like how you think about <laughs> curating, curating data for, for the end consumer, um, how they think about wallet fitting into their wider strategy. And there's clearly a much bigger story I can't uh, reframe in, in a few seconds. Uh, but my takeaway was that it was really great to see a major digital player like Google thinking so widely, so strategically, and leaning into the trends around privacy, leaning into the trends to be proactive in um, addressing the structural challenges that we're facing. Um, Google is also happily a board member of the OpenID Foundation um, for the work in, in OpenID Connect and, and many other areas. And uh, it was encouraged to see an executive, you know, stepping up in a public forum like Authenticate and talking about their plans and the importance of meeting the moment. Mm -hmm. No, that is pretty cool. It's been a very, a very excellent exchange of ideas and conversations and eye-opening stuff. I think the thing that shocked me the most is learning here that legacy MFA now also includes things like push <laughs> and authenticator apps. And, uh, you know, I feel bad for all the CISOs that deployed <laughs> that in the last year because of the pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the industry is already starting to move on. I mean, it's better than nothing, that's for sure. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I can imagine we've, that we've got some heartbroken CSO, CISOs and, and CIOs that are being... They got a tough task, don't they? Yeah, right. Exactly. They can never rest easy if you're a CISO. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that's a pretty good spot that we can go ahead and leave it. I really appreciate the time that you've given me here. And, uh, you know, totally support the, st the work that you guys are doing and uh, feel free to come back anytime. And as these things become firmer and become, you know, real things out in the real world, uh, mm -hmm. let's figure out how we get into the, into the thoughts of people out there so they can start implementing it. So really appreciate Love it, Gail. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.